are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik. Now our audio is on. It took me just a minute. I started swalking before I turned the microphone on. I'm so pleased that you could join us today. Today is December 1st, at least on my calendar. I don't know what part of the world you're in. Maybe you're in a time zone where it's already December 2nd. But today, here on the west coast of the United States, of the state of California, it is just after 12 noon on December the 1st. And I'm so pleased that you could join us for today's question and answer uh, program. If we've never been introduced before, um, as I said before, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor, a Bible teacher, a Bible commentator. And uh, if we've come across each other before, maybe you've run across my online Bible commentary, which is a completely free resource online. It's a verse-by-verse commentary through the entire Bible, uh, and it's available on our website, EnduringWord.com. But it's also available uh, on an app. We love our new app, and we love how God is using the new app absolutely free on both the um, App Store for iTunes and then as well Google Play for the Android users. That app is absolutely free. You can download it. You can use it. and It gives us access to the Bible commentary, to audio resources, to so many other things, the YouTube channel. It's a tremendous resource. We're very happy for the development of that app. And what we do on a Thursday afternoon like this, again, at least it's afternoon for me, is we come together and we answer questions. And I usually begin with a lead question that comes in, maybe it's leftover from a previous week, maybe it comes in social media, today's question comes in from social media, maybe it's an email, a comment on a previous YouTube video, whatever it is, we try to choose a lead question that might have a interest to a broader audience. And that's the case with today's lead question. Before I get into it, it'll be in just a moment here, I do want to say welcome to our TWR 360 audience. We're so grateful for the work of Trans World Radio. There are many decades of service with shortwave radio, preaching the gospel, good Bible teaching, uh, evangelism, discipleship over shortwave radio, and now their online presence, TWR 360. So we want to welcome their audience, and glad that we can do this as a partnership with them. All right, our lead question for today is, how should we pray for the salvation of others? And it's a question that comes in from Susie via Instagram. She asks this question, what's the best way to pray for unbelievers? My Jewish friends need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, but they believe Jesus is a false prophet. Susie, let me say first and foremost, that's a great question. It's something we should all be concerned about. You see, one thing that's true about Christians is that they want other people to become Christians, to put their faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, especially what Jesus did at the cross and in his resurrection. Now, of course, when we say that Christians want other people to become Christians, we never mean that in a coercive way. We never mean that in a sense where other people would be forced to become Christians or pressured or manipulated, but we believe that it's a good thing for people to put their faith in Jesus Christ, for them to be born again by God's Spirit. Excuse me. 
So as we're happy about that, and we want more people to put their faith in Jesus, then we like to pray that other people would do that. So how do we do that? How do Christians do the work of evangelism? Excuse me just for a moment here. Little turning off of the microphone there to clear my throat. But how do Christians do evangelism? Well, we speak to them about Jesus when we can. That's an important part of evangelism. We want to talk to people about what Jesus, who Jesus is, and what the Bible reveals him to be. We want to talk about what Jesus did, especially at the cross and in his resurrection. And we would talk to people about what Jesus has done in our life. So one important way that we do evangelism is we talk to people about Jesus, but we can also do the work of evangelism through prayer. As a matter of fact, I heard it said somewhere, I don't know if it was A.W. Tozer, I don't know if it was somebody else, but somebody once said this, and I think it's memorable, that in evangelism, it's more important to talk to God about men, that is in prayer, than it is to talk to men about God. In other words, evangelism has the effect, of course, of talking to people about Jesus Christ, but we also further the work of evangelism when we talk to God about other people when we pray. Now, thankfully, we don't have to choose between the one and the other. We should and we must do both. But we often neglect the role of prayer in evangelism. So here's a few principles to keep in mind when you're praying for those who do not yet believe on Jesus Christ, who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. Sometimes, I'll be honest, I shy away from the word unbeliever. Uh, There's a few reasons for that. Uh, First of all, it's talking about somebody in a negative sense about what they don't believe instead of what they believe. But there's also a sense in which everybody's a believer. Everybody believes in something. Everybody puts their faith in something. It's just what do they put their faith in. But I understand the use of the word unbeliever, and I'm not completely opposed to it. But let's talk about how do we pray for those who do not yet believe, who do not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to draw on a few scriptural principles here. First, John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know, we we often feel as if we lead, so to speak, in our relationship with God. You know, I found God. I found the Lord. I, I reached out to God. But in truth, God calls and we come. This understanding of God's initiative in salvation, it should really make us more confident in our evangelism. We know that God is drawing people. And we can expect to see those people whom the Father draws, we we can expect that those people will come to him. So the work of salvation always begins with God's drawing. I like what Adam Clark, a Methodist commentator of the early 19th century, he wrote this. He said, unless God thus draws, no man will ever come to Christ because none could, without this drawing, ever feel the need of a Savior. Now, let let me be clear. I don't regard this drawing as irresistible grace, 
And I don't regard it as regeneration, that is being born again. I don't believe that someone is born again before they come to faith. But this drawing is undeniably God's prior work. And that's absolutely essential in the work of salvation. God must work in us before we can come to him. So in prayer, we ask God, God, Lord, work in that person. I I don't know if you're like me, but I have dear people in my life, friends, family, and I'm burdened about their relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm burdened, I'm grieved that they seem to push away Jesus or perhaps even openly reject him. I pray for them asking God, draw them. Do this work, Lord, that only you can do to draw them. Okay, that's one aspect. Here's a second aspect that I think we should look at scripturally from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 3, where we read, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here, Paul develops the idea that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. And they are veiled because the God of this age, Satan and his emissaries, of course, has blinded them. They do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Those who are perishing and for whom the gospel is veiled have been blinded by Satan, the God of this age. Now, I do want to add, this does not mean that they are innocent victims of Satan's blinding work. Satan's work upon them is not the only reason why people are blinded. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. That's something for us to think about from time to time. Though men love the darkness and choose the darkness, Satan still works hard to keep them blinded to the glorious gospel of light and salvation in Jesus. Now, once you notice something in that passage from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll put it up on the screen again. He, he says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. We notice that it is in the mind of the unbelieving uh, that Satan does his blinding work. Now, of course, Satan works on the heart. He works on the emotions of those who are lost. But you could say that his main battleground is the mind. And I think I perceive a strategy of Satan in working hard to make people think less and less, to make them learn less and less, and use their minds less and less. And that's also why God has chosen his word to transmit the gospel, because the word touches our minds. And when God takes away the veil, it can touch the minds of those whom the God of this age has blinded. Now, when we understand Satan's strategy with those who do not yet believe, that should affect how we pray for them. We should ask God to shine his light upon them, 
to bind the blinding work of Satan and to give faith to overcome the unbelief that invites the blinding work of Satan. Okay, let me go to one more verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says, and the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is in the context of church services, but I think that it has application here as well. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the simple idea communicated there from 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that we should pray for kings and for rulers, for those in authority, and of course we should pray for everyday people as well. So pray for those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. And what do we pray for? Well, we pray that God would draw them. We pray that the veil that prevents them from seeing Jesus would be taken away. We pray that the blinding work of Satan would be hindered. And as Paul writes here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we pray that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray that they would repent and believe, and we pray these things in faith, leaving the results to God. Now, I think that's in general. Pray that God would draw Pray that the veil would be taken away. Pray that the blinding work of Satan would be hindered. Pray that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray that they would repent and believe, and then pray in faith. But let me add one more thing here, because this is the nature of Susie's particular question. Susie asked this question in particular to her Jewish friends who think that Jesus is a false prophet. Friends, let me just say, anybody who thinks that Jesus Christ is a false prophet has been blinded by the God of this age. They don't see Jesus for who he truly is. And it's good, it's legitimate, it's powerful for us to pray that God would open the eyes of their understanding and that they would be able to see who Jesus is. That's really what we're asking for, is it not? We're asking God to work in people so that they would be able to see Jesus for who he truly is and that they would put their trust in him, especially not just putting their trust in Jesus as a moral teacher or as a miracle worker or even as a prophet. They need to put their trust in Jesus, in what he did for them at the cross, being the sin-bearing servant, and what Jesus did for them in his resurrection. This is really the saving faith that we need to come to, and we can pray that others would come to. So, Susie, I hope that answers your question. Very pleased that you asked it. And uh, we can take a look now at the questions that have come in on the live chat through our moderator, Devin, and we'll see what they come to. Devin tells me that he is at a Starbucks in downtown Nashville right now doing this program. I don't know if any of our viewers are in a downtown Nashville right now. And, of course, I have no idea which Starbucks Devin is at. But um, if you're in downtown Nashville, anywhere near a Starbucks, 
take a look in there and see if you can find Devin, our moderator. And I'm going to go to our first question here from Jim. Jim asked this question. Why is the devil referred to as the morning star in Isaiah 14? Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, when Christ says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. You know, Jim, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to go over to that text in Isaiah chapter uh, 14, and we can take a look at it here together. Isaiah chapter 14, where it specifically speaks of Lucifer in terms of being the morning star. Um, he, here's the phrasing, and, and Jim, I don't know specifically what particular uh, translation you have, but I'm looking at it here in the New King James Version, where it says in verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Um, that's the text right there. Uh, I can enlarge it a little bit here. Again, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Um I'm going to be honest with you, I don't immediately know if Son of the Morning is really the idea of the morning star there. Um, so, Jim, I'm going to say I, I'm at a, just a, a touch of a loss to answer your question because I'm not seeing the particular um, connection there. Let, let me go over to another place here in my commentary um, Looking up here, excuse me just for a moment. I'm going to the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, Isaiah chapter 14. See if I can get a better reference on this. Okay, here's what I'm getting at. And, and now I better understand your question, Jim. Forgive me, because it took me a few minutes here. The name Lucifer itself means morning star or day star. That's what the name Lucifer means. Matter of fact, some people debate as to whether or not Lucifer is a title or if it's a name. If the if it's to be regarded as a uh, name, then you could translate it morning star or day star. And here it simply is, it's a brightly shining object in the heavens. People made note of, isn't it the planet Venus? And particularly regarded it as the morning star, the star that you see often in the sky uh, in the morning. It's the shining object there. So, here I would say that this refers to Satan in his imitation of Jesus, in his own glory. Now, the glory of Jesus infinitely surpasses the glory of Satan, Lucifer, but you could say that Satan in and of himself has some kind of glory. He's the bright and morning, um, he, he's the, the Lucifer, he's the morning star or the day star. He had this exalted place. He was the sun of the morning. Uh, as it says later on in Corinthians, he appears as an angel of light. 
So there's some, uh, there's some likeness there. So Jim, really, I, I would just put it on this. What you're referring to is the way that Lucifer as a Hebrew name is day star or could be referred to as morning star. But then later in the Greek scriptures, Jesus so far surpassing him is the true glory of God, the true uh, morning star, that uh, emblem of God's new work every morning. So that's the best answer I could give you there, Jim. I don't know how satisfactory that is, but really it's referring to Lucifer as a title or as a name for um, Satan, our adversary, the devil himself. And it refers to the whatever glory that Satan has in and of himself, which again, it's not to be compared with the glory God has, but it is a glory all of its own. Here's a way that you can compare this. Um, You can compare the glory of Venus, the morning star, as it shines in the sky and compare that to the glory of the sun itself. They're incomparable. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Gabriel and asks, is it a sin to believe in the theory of evolution? Um, Gabriel, let me answer your question by just simply saying, um, maybe. And let me clarify that. Look, there's a lot of wrong beliefs that people have because of ignorance. And I think God is gracious to our ignorance. Our ignorance is a form of sin, but I think it's an aspect of sin that God shows a lot of grace towards. So there's sin that comes from ignorance, but then there's sin or wrong beliefs that people hold out of rebellion. And if anybody holds uh, the theory of evolution as a way to replace God, that's a sin. You're trying to take God away from his place as the creator of all things. Now, I do know that there are Christians who believe in what they sometimes call theistic evolution. The idea that evolution was the mechanism by which God used to create biological life on planet Earth. Uh, By the way, there's really no debate that evolution exists. Obviously, creatures and species on this Earth change over time. What we're talking about, though, is the difference between what sometimes people call microevolution, which would be relatively small changes in organisms, in species, and things like this over many, many years. That's microevolution. And then there's macroevolution, where things become entirely different species over time. Now, there's abundant biological evidence for microevolution. It's one of the wonders of God's world. But in my estimation, and I have to speak reservedly about this because I'm no scientist, I'm a Bible book guy, but to my understanding, there's there's no just firm evidence or at least incontrovertible evidence about uh, macroevolution that one species turns into another, that uh, a fish eventually became a human being. I just 
don't think that there's evidence for that. Microevolution, yes. So, to use evolution to replace God is sin. To regard evolution as the means by which God created, I think is wrong and should be pointed out as being wrong. Uh, at least macroevolution is being the means by which God created the species. It's wrong, but it's not sin on the same level at all as being um, the sin of taking God's place away as creator. So there's a lot of questions tied up with this, Gabriel, but I, I would just simply make that distinction. Here, let me go to the next um, question from Kerasi, who asks, how would you bring the gospel to our Jewish friends, knowing that they think that they are all set? Okay, Kerasi, here's the difficult with that difficulty with that question. When you talk about your Jewish friends, <clears throat> it's a little difficult for me to know what kind of Jewish friends they are. And what I mean by that is this. There is a huge spectrum of Jewish people in regards to what they believe. There are many, many atheistic, secular Jews who for them, their Jewishness is merely their ethnicity and maybe a few customs that they keep. Then there's a whole continuum of people up to the place that you would say on the far end of the are the extremely orthodox Jewish people. So there's a whole gradation in there. So I, when you say you're Jewish friends, I don't know if you're talking about Jewish friends who are atheists. I don't know if you're talking about Jewish friends who are mildly religious, or if you're talking about Jewish friends who are very religious very serious about their Judaism. There's a whole continuum there, but I would say this in general. I had some, heard some great advice from a man I really respect and recommend to you, Joel Rosenberg. Uh, you can find his content here on YouTube and on many other outlets, and I recommend to you the Rosenberg Report, all Israel news, all Arab news, um, these are online outlets for news about Israel and the Arab-speaking world as well, the Middle East. I, I heard Joel Rosenberg say this once. He said that a mistake that many Christians make in Jewish evangelism is they think that they can only talk to Jewish people about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh. Well, I, I think that's a mistake. We can speak to Jewish people about the New Testament. So I would say, yes, obviously pray for them, but don't be shy about just talking to them about the New Testament, about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. There, there are many, many Christians who, with the best of intentions, they really feel that if I just read this Jewish person, Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, surely they would come to faith. And listen, I do believe that there have been no doubt Jewish people led to faith in Jesus as their Messiah uh, from reading Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. But for many Jewish people, 
they've heard those passages before. Uh, oftentimes, it's best just to talk to them about Jesus and to recommend to them that they read their New Testaments. Very, very few Jewish people have actually just read the New Testament for themselves. And so I recommend to people that they do this. Um, one more thing I'll recommend to you here at Kerasi is a ministry, and I do hope I have the name of this ministry correct. Um, I, I think it's titled One for Israel. They do an amazing job of evangelism, about talking about Jesus, about talking about the truth of Christianity to an Israeli Hebrew audience. Again, if I remember the name of the ministry correctly, it's One for Israel. They have a huge YouTube presence that I would strongly recommend to you, especially their many thrilling testimonies about Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as their Messiah. So I'd recommend that to you as well. All right, let me go on to the next question. Here from Lupi, who asks, in John chapter 20, verse 22, it says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What do you think about people who blow on people to supposedly give them the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> Lupi, <clears throat> I think that it is a distraction at best. If you want to talk about worse, I think of it's more of a uh, trick. It's theatrical. Here's what we understand. If you want to do something for somebody in regard to their reception of the Holy Spirit, excuse me for my pausing right here, I'm fighting back a sneeze, and perhaps successfully, if you want to do something for somebody in regard to their reception of the Holy Spirit, don't blow on them, lay hands on them and pray for them. Several times in the book of Acts and in the New Testament letters, we find the example of people laying hands on people and praying for them to receive the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. That is something that has a legitimate biblical pattern. The idea of blowing on somebody for them to receive the Holy Spirit, that seems to have been a one-off. Jesus did it with the gathered disciples on the evening of his uh, resurrection, Sunday evening, the Sunday evening of Resurrection Sunday. And that was a one-off. We don't find that replicated ever again. You know, there's a general principle that we find in the scriptures, is that if something was taught on by Jesus, if it is exampled in the book of Acts, and if it is taught on or explained in the New Testament letters, then we can pretty much regard that as being something that is normative for the church. That's something that the church should do, should practice. But there are certain things that are just simply mentioned in maybe one of those three, the Gospels, the Acts, the New Testament letters, and those things um, may not be a pattern for the church to follow throughout all times and all ages. Now, you might ask, well, 
Why did Jesus breathe on the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit? I believe there's two things going on there. Number one, in both Hebrew and Greek, the original language of the New Testament, uh, Koine Greek, common Greek, the same word for breath is the same word for both wind and spirit. Did you understand what I'm saying there? Breath, wind, and spirit are all the same word. So for Jesus to breathe onto the disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit, was virtually to impart the Holy Spirit unto them. And it also brings back an echo to the book of Genesis when God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. So the reason why we don't breathe on people is that we're not God who breathed into Adam. We're not God who has the power to impart the Holy Spirit. I can lay hands on people and pray that God would pour out his Holy Spirit upon them and give them gifts, but I can't impart the Holy Spirit to them. Only God can do that. And we don't breathe on people because we don't stand in the same place as God does, that's Jesus himself, to impart the Holy Spirit to people. We do what we can do and mentioned in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the letters of the New Testament is this idea of laying hands on people that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So, Lupe, I hope that answers that question for you. I don't think they're the same thing at all. Barry asks this question, what did the priests do inside the tabernacle's most holy place on the Day of Atonement? Barry, as I'm remembering, this is what they would do. They would simply sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, which was the um, lid to the Ark of the Covenant. That's what they did. They sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat, which was the ornate lid to the Ark of the Covenant, which had the artistic designs of the cherubim and the seraphim upon it. I'm looking for a book here to see if I have at ready access a book. It's on another part of the shelf, so I won't bother getting it. But that's what the priest did. And presumably, we're not really told this, presumably they would as well pray. But that's what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. He would go in behind the veil, sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and presumably pray for God to forgive the sins of the nation. Although, um, I I have to say, I, I don't really know if that's specifically detailed in the scriptures. He would do that, and he would leave. That's it. One man, one time a year, going in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was lost after the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And since that time, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is or if it still exists. Um, Apologies or exceptions made to our Ethiopian brothers and sisters, who believe that it's on an island, uh, on a body of water in Ethiopia, but um, I I don't know how much, well, I I don't put much stock in that, but I want to be respectful towards our Ethiopian brothers and sisters who 
are sometimes very strong in that belief. The Ark of the Covenant was not in the Holy of Holies in the second temple. The temple that was originally built by Zerubbabel and to some extent Ezra was a part of that work. That temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant in it. The people of Israel never rebuilt or built a new Ark of the Covenant. And in the days of Jesus or the second temple, the high priest, this again, according to my understanding, did not go behind the veil at all, but rather simply sprinkled the blood on the Day of Atonement on the veil itself. And the Holy of Holies was an empty room that nobody went into. So I hope that answers your question there, Barry. Next question from Anahui. Anahui asked this question. Why does the prophet Isaiah say that his name shall be called Emmanuel? And why does Matthew show that his name is Jesus? Anyway, a good question. Um, again, in that famous prophecy um, in Isaiah, announcing the coming of the Messiah, it says that, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But here it is. Sometimes a name is given as a title that people actually call uh, God or some individual. Sometimes a name is given simply as an attribute because it was very strong in the Hebraic mind that a name defined a person. And so uh, if a person was very uh, reliable, you could say his name is reliable. People didn't go around and actually call him uh, reliable. But you could just say his name. It's a figure of speech that was common to the ancient Near East. So, it's not that Jesus had Emmanuel on his business card, so to speak. But he fulfills that name, God with us. Jesus Christ walked this earth as a man. But he was more than a man. Jesus of Nazareth was God with us, God incarnate. Um, in the book of Revelation, when it describes Jesus in his glorious second coming, it says of him, and his name is called faithful and true. It doesn't mean that people are going to yell out to you, hello, Mr. Faithful. Hello, Mr. True. It just means that those two things so define who he is that in the thinking of the ancient Near East, you could say his name is called faithful and true. In the same way, you could say his name is called Emmanuel because he is the utter and complete and perfect fulfillment of the principle, God with us. Thanks for that question there. Let me go on to the next one from Tunol Banan Shugotre, our viewer who lives in Stockholm, I believe, Subway 23, says, Will Christians who don't believe in the rapture be raptured? Okay, uh, I would just answer this. Yes, is the quick answer to it. If someone is a true Christian, they could be wrong about what the Bible says about the catching away of the church, which we commonly call the rapture. 
They could be wrong about that particular thing and still be, of course, one of God's people and included in the number of those who are caught up to heaven. So, the quick answer to that is yes. Um, We just always should remind ourselves that we're not saved by the degree of our theological correctness. Now, folks, I, I hope you know, I hope you understand. I'm really big on having correct theology. My life's work is helping people to understand the Bible and to understand it correctly. Not in error, but correctly. So, I, I, I work hard at that. I, I'm a big believer in having the best, most correct theology that we have. But salvation is not a matter of passing a theology test. Now, you, you have to know some things, for sure. You have to know a good portion of the truth about Jesus, a good portion about the truth about what he did when he died on the cross for us, and a good portion about what it means that he was resurrected, that he rose from the dead. But it's not like we're more saved because we're more theologically correct. And uh, even though this is a subject where there's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of disagreement among Christian brothers and sisters about exactly what happens in the end time scenario, Uh, We do believe that, uh, yes, because we're not saved by the degree of our theological correctness, even if somebody had the the rapture of the church completely wrong, uh, God would take them. God would receive them in this catching away of the church. Next question comes from Jesper. What what is this? Swedish day? We have Tunnelbanan, Shugotre, and then now our friend Jesper. Hello, Jesper, who lives in or near Huevde. In Sweden, Jesper asked the questions, what are your thoughts on icons seeing that you have one behind you? Well, okay, Jesper, I don't know if this is an official icon because an official icon has certain rules and patterns. Well, it has some kind of thing. I think maybe it is an official icon because I see some C on the back. And this, of course, is a icon or a uh, picture of Jesus. He's in what's called, I believe, sometimes the Pantocrator pose with his hand in the teaching position and holding open a book that if I had maybe some reading glasses on, I could make out some of those Greek words. But here is simple, the idea. Um, I, I do not agree with our orthodox brothers and sisters. And when I say orthodox, I don't mean correct. I mean from the orthodox traditions. I do not agree with them in their veneration. They would insist that they don't worship the icon. But I would not agree with them in their practice of venerating or honoring iconic images. But that doesn't mean that I think that they have no value. And it doesn't mean that I completely reject, uh, of course not, our Orthodox brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. They're part of God's family, of course, um, with some practices that I would disagree with. And one of those practices that I would disagree with is their veneration of iconic images. And I understand something of their theology. I won't say that I'm an expert in it. I understand some of their theological position behind their veneration. of. I regard them as often being nice pictures, interesting pictures. Pictures that reflect something of the history of church, of the church. 
Because whatever you want to say about the history of Christianity, um, both ancient history and modern history, those segments of Christianity associated with the Orthodox faith have played a very significant role in the history of Christianity. And at times, an extremely honorable role. Let me explain. In the 20th century, it is said that more Christians were martyred than at any other period of church history all the time up to that point. In other words, all the martyrs of Christianity through uh, 33 AD to the year 1900, if you added all of those up, there were more people who were murdered as Christians for being Christians in the 20th century than all those previous centuries combined. Look, I don't know exactly how you measure that, but I don't think it's an, I, I think it's a reasonable proposition. Okay, so all that to say this, the majority of Christians who have been murdered for being Christians in the 20th century, the majority of those came from the Orthodox communions. Um, believers in Russia, believers in uh, Turkey, believers in Greece, believers uh, associated with um, Armenian communions, uh, all over uh, that part of the world, they bore the brunt of persecution, not only in the 20th century, but especially in the 20th century. And for that, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, uh, that's not the only reason they deserve our respect and honor, but I think that's one of the reasons. Even though there are several aspects of Orthodox theology or practice that I would be in disagreement with, but again, that's between them and the Lord. Uh, so, yes, I hope that answers that question. Uh, I regard icons as often wonderful and interesting pictures not as appropriate objects for veneration. Hope that helps you there, Jesper. Question question from Stanley regarding Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, where it says this. Why did God tell Moses to use a fiery serpent pole made of copper to heal the children of Israel? What does the serpent represent? Okay, Stanley, well, it, it works like this. I think what you have here is a fairly detailed picture. And this is fresh on my mind because uh, our pastor at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, Pastor Tommy Schneider, he just preached on this uh, a week ago. And so it's fresh on my mind. Jesus quoted that passage in John chapter 3, where he said, um, even as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So I want you to think about that. Jesus drew a likeness between his own being lifted up on the cross and the serpent being lifted up as Moses did in the wilderness. And our immediate reaction or response is maybe to be a little bit horrified. How would Jesus liken himself to a serpent being lifted up? Okay, well, let's come back to this idea. A serpent... In the Bible, they're always put in a negative connotation, never in a positive connotation. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, 
He came to them in the form of a serpent. Now, that was before the serpent was cursed. We don't know exactly what a serpent looked like before the fall, but we know what they looked like after the fall, after the curse that God pronounced upon the serpent. Maybe they looked somewhat different, maybe substantially different in any regard. A serpent always has a negative, a bad connotation, uh, being associated with Satan in the scriptures. Bronze, now you hear Stanley listed as copper. Uh, I, I think it's more likely bronze, but either copper or bronze. They are metals that are created through fire. Now, most metals have some kind of refining or fiery process in them, but it's especially present there in bronze. The brass serpent, I should say, was put up on the pole. What you have is you have Satan together with a metal, brass, that is associated with judgment. Brass is a metal associated with judgment in the scriptures because, again, it's made through fire, intense fire. And fire is associated with judgment. What you have lifted up in the serpent in the wilderness is sin, that's the serpent's emblem, judged. That's because it's made out of brass or bronze. You see, sir, the idea of the brazen serpent being lifted up in the wilderness is a, is a picture, is a emissary of sin judged, and that's what Jesus did at the cross. Now, we're not trying to say at all that Jesus became Satan at the cross. No, no, no. But remember what it says in 2 Corinthians, that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, to become sin for us. Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross, but he did become, as it were, sin itself, who was judged in every aspect on the cross. So that's the correlation there. A bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness, Moses was lifting up an emblem that speaks of sin judged, and that's what the cross is all about, sin judged in the perfect person of Jesus Christ. That's why for the Israelites in the wilderness, they could look unto that bronze serpent and be saved and be delivered. For us as believers, um, we look unto Jesus and his perfect work for us on the cross, that substitutionary sacrifice, that sacrifice that paid for our sins, but does so much more than that as well. Um, in every aspect of that, we look to the cross and we are saved. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Stanley. Thank you for that question. Um, Gabriel asked this question. I'm a Christian and 15 years old, but I'm struggling now. How do I live for God faithfully and hear his voice? I want to live for him and die for him. Well, Gabriel, God bless you, friend. I'm so excited to hear of a young man, 15 years old, uh, burning brightly, living strongly for Jesus and having that desire to do so. Gabriel, let me say that I was a young man. I was a young teenager when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and got serious about really living my life for him. And uh, I pray that um, the same wonderful work that I experienced being a young man, a teenager, very devoted to the Lord. I, I want that for you as well, Gabriel. And I would just say, um, faithfully live for Jesus every day. Stay close to your Bible. Stay close in prayer. 
uh, stay close with the gathering of other believers for encouragement, for fellowship, uh, worship God regularly. Commit yourself to these things, Gabriel. Commit yourself to the basics of the Christian life. Um, if you go on our YouTube channel, we have a series on there. I can't remember if it's called Roots or Rooted. I think it's called Rooted. And in that series, I try to simply explain, this is how Christians should read their Bible. This is how Christians should pray. This is how Christians should gather with other believers. This is how Christians should practice some of these basic disciplines of the Christian life. Gabriel, give yourself to those foundational basics of the Christian life, and you'll find that God will speak to you. God will strengthen you. God will guide you. It's a trap for believers to become bored and uninterested in the foundational things of the Christian life. Now, we can build on that foundation, but we never depart from it. And Gabriel, the foundation of the Christian life is hearing from God in his word, prayer, gathering together with other believers the best we can, um, telling other people about Jesus. Fasting can be an important and foundational uh, uh, aspect of your Christian life. Gabriel, give your thing, yourself to these things early in your Christian life, and you'll set a great foundation that God can build upon for decades to come. Thank you for that question there, Gabriel. Next question comes from Jordan, who asks, how can we indict Muslim extremists for being violent when the Old Testament demands such things as adulteresses, blasphemies, disobedient children, witches, etc., to be put to death? Well, Jordan, I would say this. First of all, we recognize that we don't live under the same uh, governmental arrangement that Israel lived under the Old Testament. Now, I think we certainly learn from principles that God gives in the Old Testament law for the nation of Israel, for the kingdom of Israel. There's no doubt about that. But we don't live under the same system at all. And even within the system that God gave to ancient Israel, there were many practices that took things out of the hands of the individual and put them in the hands of the community. Now, here's an example. When you talk about stoning to death someone committed of adultery, to my memory, my memory may be faulty here, but to my memory, the Jewish rabbi said that this was rarely, if ever, carried out. And one of the reasons was this, that if a woman was caught in adultery, it was not her husband's responsibility or duty to stone her or her family's responsibility to stone her. As to my knowledge, again, I'm no expert in Islamic law, but it's my understanding that that at least is the custom. I don't know if it's in Islamic law or just custom, but that at least is a custom in much of the Islamic world. It's not the family that does it. They bring her to the elders. They bring her to the civil magistrates. 
They bring her to the people who would govern over these things. So much of God's law, even though the penalties were severe, they were not to be carried out by the family. They were to be carried out by the civil authorities who could see things with a much cooler head, who could take contrary or contradictory evidence into place, who could do things that way. So that's one big difference. Again, I, I'm always a little bit cautious with this because I'm not trying to pretend to be an expert in Islamic law. This is just my understanding of it. But according to my understanding of it, this would be a difference between uh, Islamic custom as it is carried out today and the Old Testament law. But plus, in addition to that, we're just not under the law in that sense. But I would highlight that huge difference. The practice of honor killings, as it is known in Islamic custom today, is unknown to the Old Testament. Now, were there crimes worthy of execution? Yes, there were. But those were carried out by the civil magistrates, not by the family and not by a priesthood. So I, I would make that distinction. Maybe there's more distinctions, Jordan, but that's the one that immediately comes to mind. Next question comes from John Wisner. God bless you, John. I hope you're viewing right now. It's good to see your question. Uh, wonderful. I hope you and your family are doing well. Okay, here's a question from John. How can I get a hold of one of your new study Bibles coming out? John, where do you hear about the study Bible? Well, okay. Um, John, it's true that I'm in the workings right now with Thomas Nelson, the publisher, to make an enduring word study Bible. I don't want to get ahead of myself on this. The contracts have not been signed yet, so, you know, it's not a certainty. Uh, but I will say that it looks to me like it's going to happen but John, it's not going to happen for a couple of years. It's going to take a while. So it's going to be a couple of years until the Enduring Word Study Bible is out. Believe me, John, when it's out, you'll hear about it. People will hear about it. We'll want people to get it. But uh, there is work, and I'm working right now very hard on the material that will go into an Enduring Word Study Bible. Uh, but it'll take a couple of years to get out. Okay, our last question today comes from... Uh, Pitasoni, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly here, Pitasoni. How can a material body burn in hell for all eternity without being consumed by fire? Or is it rather referring to the immaterial part of man's body that burns forever in hell? Pitasoni, I would draw your attention to something that Jesus said, and I can't quote you the chapter and verse here. I kind of lean towards John chapter 5. I know it's in the Gospel of John where Jesus spoke of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Sobering to think about. Everyone will be resurrected. Everyone will receive a resurrection body. And for believers, their resurrection body will be suited to the glories of heaven. For those who reject God's salvation in Jesus Christ, they will receive a resurrection body. I stumble a little bit over the words, but they're true. A resurrection body suited for hell. So that's what we're talking about here, uh, Pizzasoni. There will be a resurrection body even for those who are in hell. And that body 
will be able to endure what God has appointed for them in hell, in the lake of fire. Okay, look, before we leave today, I want to show you this. Receive from my dear brothers and sisters in Calvary Chapel, Vladimir, Russia. Uh, they are working on the translation of my commentary into Russian, and they just sent me their latest work, the print commentary on 1 Corinthians. So, friends, pray for our ongoing uh, translation works. Pray for our work in Russian. Listen, believers in Russia are right now having a hard go of it, and they need God's word. They need deeper discipleship, and I'd like to hope that the work of my dear friends, uh, Pastor Pasha and the people at Calvary Chapel, Vladimir, uh, can be helpful in translating my commentary, and that that can play a role in helping to disciple and equip Russian-speaking believers. If you speak Russian, please don't contact me about one of these, but contact Calvary Chapel, Vladimir, Russia. You can find their material online, and uh, you can look on our own website, EnduringWord.com. We have, oh, maybe about half of the New Testament commentary that's translated and available in our Russian website, and we're going to put on more and more as it becomes available. I want to say thank you to Pastor Pasha, to the whole wonderful team there at Calvary Chapel, Vladimir. Um, We're so grateful for the work that they do, for Anya and the whole team that does the translation work. We're very grateful for it. Well, that's going to be it for today. Thank you for joining us. I do just want to add, finally, this is my last finally. Um, Enduring Word is a nonprofit, and we have what we call a year-end campaign where we just ask people, if you would like to donate to our ministry, friends, there's no pressure, there's no manipulation. If you don't want to contribute to the work of Enduring Word, then please don't. But if you do, if God puts it on your heart to donate, you can go online, EnduringWord.com, from the website or from our app, which is available either on the iTunes store or your Google Play store, you can go online and donate to the work that we have. Um, it's welcome. It's appreciated. But the last thing in the world is I want anybody to feel pressured or you know, manipulated. Um, we, we only want the gifts that come from somebody being led of the Lord and just thrilled in their heart to do it, to become partners with us financially in the work that we do. That's it for today. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that you could join us again. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.